Welcome everybody. My name is Dan Sims and welcome back to the Mole Cheese Collective podcast, where we speak to the makers, growers, farmers and families who just happen to make the best cheese in Australia. Behind every great artisan, there is an even better story. And for Ian and Kate at Tongala Cheese in Tasmania, that is certainly true. It was an absolute pleasure to sit down and talk with them both and talk about their love of their kids. And by that, we mean their goat babies as well as the humans, the cheese they make and their carbon positive farm and regenerative farming practices. We also talk about the Zoe, which is in this month's June cheese box, which will be reaching your doors this week. So stay tuned for that. Ian and Kate are truly dedicated to what they do, and I'm so grateful for the chance to talk with them and hear their story. There is a lot to unpack here, and I feel we may need to do a little sub-series on the farming side of things, but that's for later. For now, let's focus on great Tasmanian cheese, which is the focus for this month. Let's get into it. Ian and Kate Field from Tongala Cheese, uh, welcome to the Mole Cheese Collective podcast. How are you guys going? G'day, Dan. Thanks. Yeah, really well. Thanks, Dan. Well, guys, might be just to kick us off, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about Tongala Cheese and where exactly you are in Tasmania. So we're down on the lower east coast of Tassie. We're, we're on the, the edge of the ragged tier. Sounds very dramatic. <laughs> I'm overlooking Marion Bay. It's a beautiful part of the world. It's a little rain pocket in southeast Tassie. Uh, it used to be the district used to have 40-plus little dairies, and now there's two. Um, so our, our neighbours are, are the wonderful Brim Creek Dairy, and then we are Leap Farm and Tongola. And we, we have a stay there, a, a, a good cow dairy, and we're a goat dairy. So one big question, I suppose, straight away is why goats? When we when we saw the landscape, we <sighs> have you seen how big a fucking cow is, Dan? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Uh, yes, I for have. A farm, <laughs> for a small farm, it's just a it's an easy entry point, I suppose. We're not generational farmers. We had careers previous to to having our farm. Kate's an emergency doctor, a specialist, and I'm I was an academic in ecology, and. I was getting pretty frustrated with my life as an academic and it was a chance for a change. So I'd always, or we'd always had a love of cheese and I liked goat cheese growing up in Europe and I'd had the good fortune to, to travel around France a little bit and hang out in the Alps. And then we were looking for farms. To, we, we had this idea that, oh, once we've sort of been doctoring and academicing for a while, we'll we'll get a little property and life will be good. And I was frustrated. We both were pretty frustrated with living in Sydney and it was a chance to do something different a lot earlier than we thought. So we were looking on the internet, we were looking at farms in southeast Queensland and Tassie for, you know, something that might be suitable, whether it was nuts or organic farming or goats or whatever, and we found one. A photo. We found one on the internet, and there was a photo of some cows on a dam wall with the outlook over Marion Bay. And Kate piped up, "That's one of my favourite kite spots in the world." And so, I was, well, we better go and have a look at this one. The next day, Kate jetted off to San Francisco for a medical conference, and I flew down to Tassie. And it actually was perfect for what we thought would be a good enterprise for that landscape, which was running some goats for for milking and then making cheese and some cows to um, help manage the landscape 
usually people do it the other way around. They have cows to either milk or, or use for meat and then some goats to help manage the landscape. But this was a perfect opportunity for us. I guess the other thing about this bit of land is that it's proximity to um, a capital city. So we're only 50 k's east of Hobart. And for my work, because I do continue to work part-time as, as an emergency specialist, is that I had to be within a commutable distance of, of a workplace. Um, and that was really, really a lot more important when we were starting out and had to invest heavily in both the purchase of the land and the infrastructure that we've been required to build to be able to get operational. Um, but we're also in close proximity to the airport. So when we bought the land, I did not have a job in Tasmania at all. And so um, at that stage, we didn't have children either. So we figured that a job would eventually come up for me. But if required, I could do fly in, fly out, locum work around Australia to be able to support our endeavour. Yeah. So when did you um, uh, purchase the farm? Um, we settled on pretty much the 1st of July in 2012. Yeah, so when you got the farm, uh, what was the first thing that you did? Was it was it getting the goats? Was it already established? Or how, how has that been progression from, you know, making that decision and move to where you are today? I think the first thing we did was go, oh, shit, what have we done? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was quite good that there were two of us because when one was having an oh shit moment, the other one was, it's fine, it's going to be fine, <laughs> don't worry about it, it's all good. And then you'd sort of like that feeling would fade away and then the other one would go, oh, what have we done? <laughs> um, we eventually got over that. The first thing we actually had to do was find somewhere to live because our farm was just a tract of land. Um, uh, there were, our farm used to be two small cow dairies and the previous or, or even the previous owner to the previous owner um, had bought both parcels of land and reunited them. And with those two small farms were two houses. Both have been had been carved off from the, the property title and been sold separately. So we'd bought the land, but we didn't have anywhere to live. But we were just extraordinarily lucky that we'd um, already committed to the farm and then we discovered that one of the houses associated with the property was independently up for sale. And after protracted negotiations, we managed to secure that. So initially when we were on the farm, we, um, we were living at Ian's parents' house in Hobart and we were, Ian was commuting to and from the farm and I was um, working in town. So that was convenient for me, but not so much for him. So, so when... Um you sort of you've you've got the house, you've got the farm, uh, you've made the decision to to get the goats. I mean, what was there a particular goat that you you wanted to to go, or was there a particular um, style of cheese that we were looking to do, or was it sort of something that you wanted to sort of see see what you could produce from that land and you know well, let it evolve naturally? We, we we've done a lot of research. I mean, that's what part of my job was before being a farmer. I was a research scientist, so we read a lot. We we looked into um, who was already doing things and you know one of the first ones that pop up popped up was was holy goat and you've got to take your hat off to the ladies there they do an absolutely amazing They're job amazing. and we we sort of we formulated a, a business plan and we we worked out 
all the costings and we had to go to the bank and say, this is our business plan, you know, we're going to back us and they didn't want to do it. So, okay, <laughs> we'll just find another way. And we, we, we sort of had done a lot of reading. We knew roughly what we wanted and then it was trying to find some goats. Um, we bought some cows off the, the farmer who had the place before us, so cows were fine. It came with... 100 feral goats, well, they were never going to cut the mustard as a milk herd. Um, but, gee, they're tasty. Uh, and, oh, we, yeah. and we um, had to find some, some, some dairy goats. And I don't know how much you or your listeners know about Tasmanian dairy goat herds, but they've been rife with a, a disease down here called caprinarthritic encephalitis. And it was something we were acutely aware of. It's a degenerative disease that... You only see in older goats. You don't know if younger goats have it. The test at the time, eight, nine years ago, wasn't very good. It's much better now. And so it's very easy to get CAE in your herd and then you're going to have this problem for a long time because it's transferred by bodily fluids. So if you're using mixed milk to feed the kids, then you can quickly infect all of the kids of the year. So growing your herd is quite difficult. So we took a really strong stance on having a closed herd, and I understood closed herd populations really well from the wildlife work that I'd done in the past. And so we sought out some clean goat herds, and then we approached them to see if we could buy some goats from them. And there's, a, there's some interesting lines to this story. And that's how we met Hans and Esther, um, who were Tongola before us. And... Uh, we approached them and said, could we buy some goats from you? And Hansi said, oh, how many do you want? <laughs> and I said, oh, could we have 30 milking goats? He said, oh, no. And he, kind of, he said, you can have 10 kids. So I was like, okay. He goes, you raise those 10 kids and then if it's going well, we'll save you some more. <laughs> and like, okay, right, this has put a complete spanner in the works for our, our financial plan. Yeah. but. Actually, it was the best thing. So we went to meet Hans and Esther. Their goats are their family. They make beautiful cheese. They're Swiss Germans who used to work in the Swiss Alps making cheese. And then so we went to meet them. We met their goats. They were quite happy with what they saw. We seem to have similar farming ethoses. And after our conversations, Esther said, well, would you like to come and see the goats, meet the girls? So we said, sure. And then... This was a test, of course. Of course. We didn't really um, time, but um, we went down to meet the goats and we were really happy to meet the goats and we were asking what their names were and giving them pats and cuddles and talking more about the goats. And, of course, they weren't going to be selling their kids to just anyone. They wanted to make sure that we were animal people. And uh, I really appreciate that now we are the same about our animals when we sell our animals off farm. We need to make sure that they're going to go to good homes where they're going to be cared for and not seen as a commodity. Yeah, absolutely. So so you started off with 10 We've got 10 kids, kids from them and a month later Hans and Esther came to visit and um, just check on their, their, their kids and they were, they were really happy with what they saw so they sold us another eight. And that's all they had for that season. They were, they only had a small goat herd. 
So when um, was it? Oh, that, that's amazing. So that this is. Um, and so I'm just running in terms of the this timeline. This was in the spring 2012 wow. that we got the the first 18 goats, and oh my goodness, there were lessons. Oh, uh, we I learned a lot. We we then had to imagine. build a girl, and it took us two years to get. Well, the go- the goats had the girls had to grow from being kids to being milking age and get back in, uh, be joined with a buck so that they were ready to kid. And that, that all took two years and that was an amazing two years of, of learning, getting to know our goats, getting to know our farm, getting to know the whole process of what we were getting ourselves in for and at the same time trying to change the farm just a little bit to where we needed it to be. So when was the first year that you made cheese? And, and then, it took, it? then it took us another two or three years to make cheese. So once we had the dairy up and running, that was 2014. Hamish was born, our son, in August 2014, and we finally started milking in December. So we, we've never sort of tried to make it easy for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we had... We had the baby. We had bull goats on the farm at that stage. I got out of hospital having just had a caesarean, unfortunately. But anyway, and um, the bull goats had kitted while I was in hospital and there were all these babies and they were, they were in this really steep paddock and the baby, they all had triplets that year, bloody hell goats and triplets. Anyway, and because they'd got, gotten really squashed in utero, they were really weak. So they, every time they tried to stand up and it was dusk and it was August in Tasmania with a clear sky, so oh, there's going to be a oh. hard front, they'd just stand up and roll down the hill. I remember misting drizzle, but uh, I won't get in the way of a good story. <laughs> I remember clear skies and it was so cold. Anyway, so there we are, four-wheel drive. I'm four-wheel driving across the paddock in the Hilux with the baby on the front seat, with one hand on the baby, as Ian scooping up these baby goats and chucking them into the tray into an appropriate container so that we can move them out of the paddock and into the shed. We never made it easy for ourselves. (laughs) Then in September, we actually had our, our dairy goats kid for the first time. And then we were, we didn't have the dairy yet. Our machine was supposed to be installed. The platform was all there. It was all ready, but we we just hadn't got our local agents to come and finalise the machine, the milking machine, which was a second-hand cow dairy one we'd managed to source. And so it was, anyway, we started in December, but then we took, we, we, Hans and Esther were really impressed with us and we really liked with them. And they said, well, we'll buy all your milk at a premium because it's an extension of their herd. And so for the next two or three years, we supplied Hans and Esther with all our milk as we grew. And we've all, again, we've kept a closed herd. So we've, we've only ever kept our own babies. We, we buy in a buck every so often to keep genetic diversity. But we, we, we've always just grown organically with, with, with our numbers. Bucks are much, testing one buck is much easier than testing many bucks. Or many many does, so to grow a herd quickly, and you can actually double a goat herd almost every two years. So, how many goats yeah. have you got today on the farm? Dairy goats, I should say. This morning we milked seventy-two, right? And we we, we did seventy-two last year as well. Generally, we've got a couple of extra adult does as well. Some we won't force them to be milkers if they don't want to be milkers. 
and they don't they'll, they can just so I, I should say we're a seasonal dairy we milk from september october through to may june so we're just we're milking now for winter cheese then we milk once a day for the bulk of the season and milking once a day that allows us to keep leave the kids with their mothers for the till they wean or until the girls go in with the bucks in in april and then we we may hard wean them then um so we we keep all our kids and then obviously we, we because of the way we've structured our farm we have a meat business as well so we we have beef cattle and then the excess from our dairy herd is our um our meat goat meat so we give the animals as, as best a life as we can while they're here they're happy healthy animals and then when it's time to go it's time to go it's time to go um, so 72 milkers next year will grow a little bit um our machines are 12 a side platform so it's it's all sort of on multiples of 12 and but the associated herd we probably swell from 120 or so over winter to just under 300 through the summer right that's amazing because we have all the kids and they generally have twins although we seem oh. to have a high proportion of triplets percent <laughs> about <laughs> they are quite cute those little kids uh, very oh, it's the best time of year well let's talk about cheese um uh, we probably should talk about cheese, shouldn't we? Um, and, and in particular, I'd like to talk about one of them, uh, and that's the Zoe, because that's the one that we've got in this month's uh, this month's box, focusing on uh, cheese in particular from Tasmania. Was there uh, one? I suppose before that is, uh, was there a cheese moment that you know really got you hooked, and and then two, you know, where's that inspiration come from for for the Zoe? For 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 me, now Kate's maybe different. I was going to one of the French subantarctic islands for a summer season to work on southern elephant seals and, and other marine predators, which is what I did a lot of. We were steaming down on the Marion de Fresne, their resupply ship, and every day was five course silver service lunch and dinner. <laughs> um, they certainly know how to live the food culture. And every day, fourth course was cheese. And so the guys who looked after us would come around with a platter of cheese, just three cheeses on a, on a silver plate, and you'd choose one and they'd just slice off a little bit for you and then that was your, your cheese course. And every day I'd have the chef because I really, really liked goat's cheese. It's, it's texture, it's got a slight um, different flavour. It's not just a lot of fat and in the mouth. It actually has um, a unique texture and flavour to goat's milk. And good goat's cheese isn't goaty, but it just has a, a beautiful flavour to it. I've still got such a vivid memory of, of being asked what cheese I'd like, it being cut for me, popped onto my plate, and then really enjoying it every day. And so that was my cheese moment. Kate, what about you? Was there uh, a moment? I, um, well, I didn't actually like cheese until <laughs> I was about 18, which I think is absolutely hysterical. Um, I don't like milk. I don't 
I'll occasionally have a latte, but I don't really like milk. Yep. And I'm not a massive fan of ice cream, but I'm now I'm totally in love with yogurt. I've always loved yogurt and um, now I like cheese. I love cheese now. Uh, but I grew up in Melbourne and then when I was 18, I went to Tasmania for medical school and my Tasmanian friends introduced me to local Tasmanian cheese and I discovered that cheese was actually really delicious. Um, and then um, when I met Ian, um, the, my, my cheese moment that I can really think of was uh, we, we actually met playing rugby union for university and uh, there'd been a women's rugby tournament up in the northwest of the state in Burnie, which is really the northwest of Tassie is great dairying country. And a lot of the cheese manufacturers are based up in Burnie. And uh, we went into one to their, essentially their, their factory shop and I managed to pick up a kilo of brie for $20. I was a student at the time, so I never had any money. So I'd spent my last bit of disposable income on, on dog food, on dog food and cheese, because I had a dog at the time. And uh, Ian was over one Saturday, Sunday afternoon, and he's like, "Oh, I'm really hungry. Do you have anything to eat?" And I'm like, "Oh, gee, I'm really hungry too." And I opened the fridge door, and all there was was a kilo of brie <laughs> and a dog food and I just looked at him and looked at the fridge and said gee I hope you like cheese and his response was I love cheese and I'm like right that's it <laughs> so our whole relationship was actually founded on a on a on a kilo of brie a kilo of brie I love that go to the fridge uh, and there's a kilo of brie and some dog food it's uh that's Look, it's I actually I, I like that. I think I tell you what, my my fridge uh, when I was just at home did not have either of those things. So it's amazing. Well, maybe tell us priorities, Dan. Oh, absolutely. I, I I admire it. It's incredible. Well, tell us about the Zoe. Um, uh, so this is one cheese that I really quite like. And uh, talk us talk us through this cheese. How do you how do you describe it? Well, some people have described it described it as a little cloud of joy. Um, it's a lovely little cheese, fairly unique. It's a lactic set, white mould ripened cheese. And it's certainly a mouthful to say, and it's a beautiful cheese to have in the mouth. So it's it's set with our lactic curd, our, our curdy, our lactic curd that you guys have, have yep. um, sent out in the boxes before, is, is a beautiful lactic set curd, slow cheese at its best. So we take the milk of the day, we, we warm it up and pasteurise it, we then add a tiny bit of culture, a tiny, tiny amount of rennet just to help things get started, and then we set that. It takes about two days to make a fresh cheese. So it's a beautiful, slow process. Sorry, the, the puppy's just uh, destroying the, the brush. <laughs> I it, love it's, it. It's his favourite toy, not that we encourage it. Um, and so it's just this, this beautiful little cheese. And what when it ripens... Over the two weeks, because it's a fresh cheese, it's still got lots of um, water activity going on, and and that just helps the, well, dare I say it, ripening. I was going to say decomposition, but that's probably not quite well, the right. Well, it's another word for it, isn't it? Um, but it just gets that ripening action going really well. And if you have it in the first week, 
It's a lovely, mild little cheese with a white mold rind. If you have it the following week, it's starting to to ripen and starting to ooze at the edges. And then if you leave it until the top collapses in the third week, that's just a sign that it's how I like it. And then it'll be getting really oozy and strong. And it's almost got those those tones of a blue cheese. But it's not. It's just a little beautiful white mold lactic set cheese. And that lactic acid just helps give it that punch. Oh, I've got to say, it's one of the things that I've really enjoyed, and I've said this before on this podcast, is um, the benefits of the uh, have with the collective is the opportunity to look at cheeses uh, at different stages of their evolution or their maturity. <clears throat> Excuse me, and and I love what you talk about there when you're getting it at the start, couple like another week or two or three weeks, and just seeing it evolve um, over that period of time is really something amazing because so often we see cheese in isolation in a in a particular moment and. To watch it, to really understand and respect um, the artisan nature of, of of what you know yourselves and cheesemakers do is is just just amazing. I've, I I think it's that that real curiosity of where, where is this going and where, where is that moment uh, that gets you to that point that of, of a style of cheese that um, you know it's like a personal preference. You were saying you like you well, like it, about three weeks. Subject. Yes, you know not everyone has the same taste buds and. How you like cheese with a texture, taste, flavour—it's it, all different. And so, unfortunately, Zoe's are a, a small cheese, about a hundred grams. So <laughs> you can't really leave the one cheese; it just goes. Um, but it's lovely being able to talk to our customers to say, uh, "How do you like your cheese?" And they, "Oh, I don't like it too strong," or "I really like blue cheese." And you say, "Well." Take, take the cheese and have it about this or leave it, try it now, but if it's not right, put it back in the fridge, leave it, let it go a bit longer or, you know, leave it three weeks till you see the top collapse and then, then hook in. And go from there. Um, I just want to touch on something um, which I know both of you are very passionate about um, and that is also, um, we said we're recording this at the start of June and just a couple of days ago you announced um, via press release that you've got the farm carbon positive and it's i know something uh especially with genetic farming and and how you sort of look after your your wonderful land is very important to you maybe talk us a little bit about um how your farm is carbon positive the this actually started when we bought the farm it's not something we've been doing it's not something you just do and it's taken us the last five years and so that even though the press release press release was earlier in the week this has been going on properly for the last five years. So we had our soil tested in 2016 and then we've left them five years. And during that time, we've had some drought down here. It sounds funny being in Tassie and hearing the word drought, but we had we were down a year's worth of rain over a three-year period. And so we were wondering whether we, we would be even carbon neutral. We hoped we would be with the, the measures we've put in place has certainly given us good resilience in our pasture, which means that we always have something growing, we always have something available for the animals to eat. But we had to wait over the time to let the carbon build up in the soil. And carbon's really easy to lose. It's, it's, it's relatively easy to get in there, but it's also really easy to lose depending on the water, drought, and, and uh, farming practices. So we... We got the soil tested. We got the soils retested recently, 
it's taken me a while to do the calculations because it hasn't been simple, but there's some very clever people out there at the University of Tasmania and at the University of Melbourne who have helped create tools for farmers to, to use. And I'm, I'm forced myself one day to sit down. We've been so busy making cheese, I, I don't get a chance to do it and in the evenings I'm usually tired. And we worked it out and sure enough, we emit 190 tonnes of carbon a year. And I, I, I should also point out that we haven't used the accredited uh, audit scheme that the government requires for carbon trading or the, the Australian carbon credit schemes. We've done it just as a, a re using research tools, but they're very robust and they're right. And we sort of had a slightly different focus because we're a small farm. And carbon is becoming a, an important part of what we do. And it's going to come mainstream. So we're sort of at the tip of the spear here. And I'm sort of digressing a little bit. If, if you ever need to pull me back on track, Dan, and Kate will do it, if not. Well, you've told people how much we emit, but you haven't told them that's how right. much we, we got to I was about so, to say, yes. So we emit 190 tonnes of carbon equivalency a year. But through our soils, our farm management, our stocking densities, um, through the use of solar PV and solar hot water for our dairy and cheese processing factory, cheesery, we sequester 620 tonnes of carbon equivalent per year, so three times as much. Incredible. And that equates to generally the average Australian house emits seven tonnes of carbon equivalents a year, so we offset 60 average Australian houses. And per year. pretty powder of that off a farm that's essentially a kilometre by a kilometre. That's, uh, that's incredible. Congratulations, guys. And, Kate, I've also got to do a bit of plug for your podcast, The Curious Farmer, which is really amazing. There is, And for anyone who's listening to talk about regenerative agriculture and farming, do check it out. There are some incredible episodes and great conversations there. Kate, Maybe um, tell us a little bit about your podcast and, and, and maybe we'll get you to both talk about uh, why, why this is such a, an important um, conversation for you to have. <clears throat> My podcast um, kind of evolved out of a need to check out what other people were doing to work out if there was stuff that we could be doing better. And I realised that it was a great mechanism to keep myself accountable and also more importantly to be able to share the information that I was discovering with anyone who wanted to listen. I, the wonderful thing about podcasts is that you can reach anyone in the world who's got some kind of podcast listening app essentially or internet connection and so there is just there's no gatekeeper essentially, which means that you can get that information out there and anyone can consume it. Um, so really the podcast started because I have questions. I, we, While we've had our farm almost 10 years, we certainly don't profess to be... I know nothing. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's the place that we both come from. We actually know nothing about this. Neither of us had a background in agriculture before we bought our farm. We've never done any tertiary study in agriculture. Everything we've learnt, we've learnt 
through other mechanisms, whether that's reading books, reading papers. Ian's an ecologist, but his ecology area of expertise was never in farming. It was... Natural resource management and wildlife populations. There you go. And all his work was either in um, the fisheries around northern Australia or in the Antarctic and sub-Antarctic waters and land. I like to say I worked from the tropics to the poles and everything in between on big animals generally. Right. (laughs) Um, Which is why he loves the cats so much. But anyway. Another story. Um, So, yeah, my podcast started as a way of me. I I love conversation. One of the the best things about my um, professional career is that I get to talk to anyone and everyone, and I have met some of the most amazing people that I've just had the good fortune to come in contact with because they've been unwell or one of their loved ones has been unwell, and I've been able to have some fantastic conversations. So I love talking to people and I love getting their stories and I find that story narrative is such a fantastic way to learn and it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective Um, and you think back to our Indigenous people's heritage and their culture, which is a a culture of oral narrative Um, and it's how I think humans best convey information and best learn. And so... I've found that the podcast is just a great mechanism for me to get to find people who can answer my questions and to learn more from people. And really, it's um, a great example of um, in humility, I think, because I really know nothing. And I'm really quite happy to put it out there that I know nothing about this and that I'm ready and willing to learn. And why don't you all come along on the journey with me? Maybe saying no, not slightly. Um out there i think probably what we say is there's a lot more to learn yeah i love what you say there about sort of a humility around what you don't know but also i think that that's uh that comes with a curiosity and balanced out with the curiosity of wanting to learn more and uh and it's amazing you're saying like the being on the farm for 10 years and to 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 see sort of that change and growth and evolution in that it's uh it is it's is a great starting point and um and you sort of uh is this something in terms of regenerative farming um, unique in Tasmania or is this something that is something that we just don't know enough about? One of the reasons we put the press release out was that the story's about us, but it's actually not about us. It's about Australian farms and Tasmanian farms because when I look around us, our neighbours, other farms in the district and across Tasmania, we're not that different to many of them and I'm sure probably at least half of them or more would be close to being carbon neutral, if not carbon positive. And they're not necessarily regenerative. They, they may be conventional farms with large tree stands, um, with private forests, with other areas that they just leave as, as small reserves or under covenant. And so what we really wanted to do was open the conversation up because Carbon farming per se for carbon credits isn't necessarily the only opportunity available to farmers. And I think probably over the next 20 to 40 years, it's going to come mainstream. It's going to become the norm. And I, I suppose that's what really we wanted to start conversations around because certainly for Tassie, if we can reach a carbon neutral status as a state, 
early on, then we're going to be able to market ourselves as carbon neutral. And so therefore we can decouple productivity and profitability and be benefiting both the farmers, the communities that support that they support and support them, but also in a really sustainable and environmentally friendly way. I mean, and I, you know, there's, there's a, with climate change, and I, I did a bit of research in, in the climate change field when I was a scientist, you know, we're going to see certain areas of Australia become less productive for farming. We can see certain areas become more intensely farmed, and Tassie's probably one of those. As our climate changes, we're going to be more amenable to, to some other cash crops and um, to continue with what we've been doing. And, and other areas of the country are just going to become uh, far, far harder to farm. So this just gives certain farmers now the opportunity to, to think ahead, to think, where am I? Where are we going to be? And even those areas that are going to be harder to farm conventionally now can look at what carbon farming options are there or other farming options are there that will be more suitable to their changing climate. And the strategies that we've used on our farm won't suit everyone, but there are certain strategies and, and tools and technology that's there will help you know farmers to, to farm more effectively and to, to be able to, to farm with changing climate i feel uh we could we've just opened up another pandora's box here and we could probably talk about this for like an entirely other podcast and i think i'm gonna have to do that yeah uh, that'd be my podcast dan <laughs> get him down I'd, I'd just like to just say, say a couple of other things you know australian agriculture has actually reduced its emissions over the last 10 years by 18 percent so Australian agriculture has done a lot to reduce its emissions. And we're now in a period where reducing our emissions isn't just enough. We now need to sequester carbon. We need to pull it out of the atmosphere if we need to keep to the 1.5 to 2.6 degree change. If we don't, and I don't mean to be a scaremonger because I see a positive future in this and we need to, to get on and sequester carbon because otherwise if we don't meet these targets, and our current government needs to do a lot more and future governments will need to, you know, keep the pressure on and society needs to think in some different ways. But if we don't change, we're going to see up to a 60-metre sea level rise by uh, 2100. And you think what large proportions of the global population live in, in cities around the coasts, they're all going to be underwater. That's going to change how our environment is is as we think it. It's going to change the amount of farmland that's available. We're looking down an environmental disaster that, you know, would benefit a wonderful Hollywood blockbuster. You know, it's, I can't stress this more seriously from both a farming perspective and from a, a science perspective. Trust what the experts are saying. There's no time for doubt. We need to act and we need to act now. Ian and Kate uh, Field, thank you so much for joining us for the Mold Cheese Collective podcast. Uh, your insights and story are, are really incredible. And thank you all so much uh, for being with us. Uh, we love the cheese. We love what you're doing. And, uh, we, you know, I, I really do want to unpack uh, more uh, about uh, the farming side of things as well. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thanks so much for listening in to the Mold Cheese Collective podcast. 
If you'd like to hear more, we do hope you consider subscribing or even better, share it with your mates or via the socials. It all goes a long way to help us spreading the good word about Australian cheese. If you'd like to get in touch or have any feedback at all, please follow us at the socials at, at Mole Cheese or send us an email to hello at molecheesefestival.com. We've got so many more conversations to come. So until next time, cheers. Cheers.